Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I am your host, Tatiana Kosesanov. I am so deeply honored and childishly excited to have with me today as my guest, Dr. Michael Merzini. He's a world-renowned neuroscientist, professor emeritus at the University of California, San Francisco, a member of both the National Academy of Science and the Institute of Medicine, He's also the co-founder of Scientific Learning and Posit Science, both companies that apply brain training strategies to improve brain health and performance. He is often called the father of brain plasticity and is one of the scientists responsible for our current understanding of brain change across lifespan. More than 300 published scientific studies and more than 60 patents have been awarded related to brain plasticity and the medical translation of this neuroscientific discipline. He has received numerous prestigious awards and prizes for his work, and he and his work have been highlighted in hundreds of books, news articles, films, and TV programs, and amazingly, this podcast. So first of all, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. It's nice to talk to you, Tatiana. So the pleasure is all mine, absolutely. Um, first and foremost, let's, let's define our terms. So what is brain plasticity? Well, we know the brain physically changes as we, and, and specifically as we acquire any ability or as we improve at any ability, uh, that is accounted for by physical and functional changes in our neurology, you could say. Our brain is continually changing. And, and at, at the heart of it, it's changing its wiring. Uh, we basically we basically uh, specialize its wiring, and that specialization is the basis of skill acquisition or skill improvement. And and uh, basically, we come into the world with a brain that's ill-formed and uh, not doing a very good good job of interpreting what's out there, or making sense of it, or controlling our actions within that world. And we create ourselves, you know, through changing through quadrillions of moments of change. We create a unique instrument within our skulls that is us that that has our history in it that has all of the uh, skills and abilities accounted for it modifying itself you, you know it's uh, it's just an unbelievable gift that we're given you could say from the creator of the universe or from mother nature uh, this capacity to continually change our ourself our brain, our physical and functional brain across the span of our lifetime. And it's a gift that's with us for life. That's really a, a very, very centrally important point. But let's go back to the beginning of time. So we, we come into this world, and as you said yourself, you know, the brain is, is, is barely formed. It's not really functional. And it's open to absolutely all the information that comes into right. it. Um, now, it makes sense to me that after a certain period of time where you're just constantly receiving all these sort of like downloads of information that the brain is actually filled with too much. And so a period of neurostability comes into play where that that changing is, is less, less fast and less quick in order to preserve some of those important functions. Can you speak a little bit more about that developmental process? Well, when we begin, uh, we're sort of open receivers of information. We're sorting it, we're weighing it, we're, 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 we're tabulating it in a sense, we're, 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 rec we're recording it richly. Uh, our, our filters are wide open, you could say. We're, we're not really operating on it very selectively. Uh, we're, we're building a repertoire of the things that are out there in the world that we just happen to have been born in. So, for example, we're exposed to a language, our native language, and it doesn't really matter what it is within three or four months by its open reception and plasticity, the brain creates an ideal receiver for that language. It's processing it now sort of in an optimal form to pick off those fast sounds, fast changing sounds that apply to that language. It doesn't, it's, it, 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 and again, it doesn't care that it's Tagalog or Spanish or Italian or whatever. It, it, it optimizes itself for whatever it's receiving, for whatever signal it's receiving. At some point, it changes from being a sort of or organized receiver, sorting information and organizing information, to beginning to bring that information sort of under control. It actually creates a, a sort of central power or force that is us, the controlling agent, the person, you, you could say, that is controlling the actions of the receiver. 
So it, all of this evolves within us as a function of our, you could say, personal histories. So every one of us is born un, in different circumstances and different, uh, and has different, is exposed to different specific things that relate to our cultural life and circumstances and families and 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 we evolve in a very special way that comes from that, reflects that, it uniquely reflects that. I mean, no one else has a brain just exactly like yours, Tatiana. You know, what a, what a fantastic thing that is. It differentiates us all, one from another. And it's all of this is evolving within us by the brain changing itself, continually changing it, initially very open. What happens is, is that the brain learns to control when change is permitted. Okay, that's the main thing that occurs as you get older. Initially, it's anything goes. It's very non-selective. But once you're in control, it basically only permits change to occur when you can say it matters to it. So it's always making a judgment about, let's say that you're practicing something and, you're, and you have a, a good try. You did it better this time than you've ever done it before. Well, that's the brain detects that. And basically, it releases chemicals that say, save that one, save that one, and that enables change. So it evolves in a positive way when the brain interprets the change to be good for it. On the other hand, if you had a bad try, the brain basically does not release those chemicals and it said, don't save that one, don't say that one, don't say that one, right? That one is a non-counter. The brain learns to control its changes as a function of their values to it. What a what a what an amazing thing! You, know, you are actually continuously evaluating whether or not you should permit change. Right? It's a it's an amazing thing. Of course, most of this occurs automatically. You've been aware, unaware of this; it's done unthinkingly. Uh, but uh, these processes are in play in a brain. It's not that the brain is substantially less plastic when you're you know, an adult as opposed to a child. It, it's just that now plasticity is under control of the brain. Now, it's true that when you get older, the machinery that controls these changes can weaken. So that oftentimes you, you, uh, you would argue, it is, it is argued, if I just take an old brain and compare it with a, a young brain, I can generally show that that old brain is a slower learner. But the plasticity machinery is plastic. The machinery that controls change is actually plastic. And you can take uh, almost any older person and train it in a, in a way that, that drives improvements of that machinery. And now the older person can learn as fast as the younger person. Wow, that's uh, such so, good news. <laughs> yeah, which is really important, right? So uh, it, it's, it partly is if you live life in the right way, you could say and continually engage this, this learning machinery so that it's always, you could say, uh, well exercised. You know, you watch an older person that's in a, in, has a life of continuous new learning of new things, new skills, new abilities. That person generally is a pretty lively learner. And, and that comes from the fact that they're keeping this machinery in a healthy state. Great. Okay, I want to talk a little bit more about um, aging a bit later on in the conversation. Yeah. But let, sure. let's look first at, at damage. So there are... Right several, um, a million different reasons why a brain may not function optimally, right. um, even in a young person. But this right. plasticity process really has a central role to play there. And that's something that you and one of your companies are very involved in. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that too? Sure. Well, first of all, Tatiana, uh, I mean, abnormal is normal. Right. say, <laughs> oh, you know, uh, you know, I, People, especially people that struggle or have a vicissitude, you know, something's happened to them. They've been, their brain's been poisoned or their brain's been infected or their brain, they've been whacked in the head or fallen off their bike. That's or pretty much all of us by some point. Things, right, like you said. And, 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 and so they think, well, they're, they're a rare creature that's really suffering, right? But actually, they're, they're, this is part of life. The majority of people that reach their 60th birthday have had a diagnosed psychiatric or, or neurological problem that's, that's needed medical treatment. So this is, it's not unusual to have a problem like this. But fortunately, Tatiana, the brain is plastic. You know, it, it, it can, even when damage is substantial, the brain is still plastic. And that's another way of saying it can change itself. Now it's not, you can't, it's hard to deal with 
large-scale damage completely. But every brain is subject to improvement in a positive direction or in a recovering direction. I mean, that's the way to, way to think about it. And when the damage is diffuse, which it often is, you know, I've, I've had a concussion or I've had some relatively uh, substantial head injury, but I, you know, I don't have big regions of my brain that have been lost. Then the recovery can often be very complete. Okay, because the brain is plastic. One thing to remember about the, the plastic brain, and this is what a company called Posit Science programs that, that are, uh, you, you could find under the label Brain HQ on the internet. It's what they're largely designed to deal with. Are people that have problems like this or problems in aging. Uh, and and uh, we know that we can drive. We, we've conducted many clinical studies in many of these populations, about 50 different clinical indications. People have brain problems from different regions. Uh, scientists have conducted controlled trials using these tools, and they drive positive changes in a normal word direction in virtually every case. So you can always get better. Your brain is plastic. You know, you're in charge of getting better when something like this happens to you. And, you know, because most of these conditions lead to an increased probability that you'll end life badly, that it will that will it lead you with higher probability ultimately towards dementia or to another serious problem in older age. It's really important that you think about your lifestyle and think about things you can do in 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 in, in, in maybe maybe go to the computer do something like the like brain HQX to improve yourself to try to drive yourself to a safer position. But always remember that you have the capacity to be better or stronger, no matter what you've had to put up with next week, significantly better a month from now, a lot better if you really worked at it a year from now. It's, Tatiana, it's all about continuous personal growth. No matter what you, you're, you're faced with, why not think about growing yourself in a positive direction as opposed to witnessing and commiserating about your decline? Absolutely. And that's what it's about. So how long does this process of, of neuroplasticity um, or brain plasticity take? I mean, I, I guess that's a bit of a question, like how long yeah. is a piece of string? But, um, yeah. you know, we, for example, in, in some of the transformational change work that, that I'm involved in, we give our clients a recording, for example, and say you have to listen to it for at least 21 days because it, you yeah. know, brain learns by repetition and doing right. and right. so on and so forth. So how long do, you, do these changes um, well, dramatic changes take in sort of the actual physiology of the brain. Well, Tatiana, it's like that. It's a, it's a, it's akin to physical exercise. You know, you have to change uh, uh, the, the the brain structure and brain the integrity of the brain uh, progressively. So you think about where you're at. You know, at the <laughs> you're, you can always move forward from where you're at, but the changes will occur relatively slowly. I mean, you have there has to be substantial repetition. It has to, there has to be, it has to be effortful, it has to matter to the brain. It has to be done in an, an appropriate context. And, you know, you could think about it in terms of any skill. If I wanted to, let's say, acquire the ability to play ping pong and I can't play it, you know, when I begin, how long would it take me to reach a level of proficiency? You know, and what you're really talking about is how long it took your brain to drive its operational characteristics for that sort of complex, you know, visual to, to motor control set of abilities, right? It, it will take you, you know, a month or two of substantial effort, right? And this is what, what, what you're talking about. Right. In most of, you can drive very large changes in a brain that really matter to you within 10 hours of appropriate intensive training. Wow. And commonly that might be played out in a, in a brain over uh, 20 days, right? Half an hour a day for 20 days. But, you know, it's still a substantial effort. Now, if you do that, Here's, this is an actual study. Five hours on a training task. A year later, two to four more hours. A training task. What you're doing is you're driving changes in the speed of operations of the brain. Initially, the old brain is slow. People were initially about 75 years old. They were trained for five hours. Now they're much faster, twice as fast. Now, a year later, they trained two, two to four more hours. Two, more, two years go by, they're trained at two, two to four, four more hours, right? So they've had a total of 
nine to, to 13 hours. Now, we look at five years and we see they're still a lot faster. And we also see that they're faster, a lot faster in performing everyday tasks than they were before they started. So even though they just trained for a few hours, the training is having an impact long after they completed the training and they're still better off than before they initiated that training now five years before. Now let's wait another five years with no training. They're still faster than they were before they started. They're still faster at everyday tasks before they started. And half as many of them have progressed to dementia. Wow. So you, when you think about it, you say, well, they, they've only had nine to 13 hours of exercise in a progressive training strategy. That's really not a tremendous effort. So one of the things that drives me crazy about this is that, Tatiana, is that, you know, people whine about how hard something like this is. You know, they say, oh, I got to do something every day. And I got to, you know, I got to, how am I going to have time for my team here? I'm so busy, right? This is the best, you know, nine to 13 hours these people ever will spend in their life from the point of view of their health. And uh, so it, it's not, it, it's effortful, but it's not like you can make a substantial difference by just giving it a serious intensive try for even relatively limited periods of time, right? But think of what you could do, Tatiana, if you just brought this into your life. You say, okay, from now point forward, I'm gonna use my plastic brain and I'm gonna to adapt to what I do in life. I'm gonna be a continual learner and I'm gonna really engage in the world and I'm gonna do everything to improve my skills and abilities and all these elemental ways to keep my brain healthy. You don't, don't wouldn't have to go to Brain HQ and, and uh, do the brain gems things. You think how much more vital and positive your life could be if you just did that. Yeah, I know. Mm -hmm. I'm, as I turned 40, over 15 years ago now, um, I made the pledge that I was going to learn something new every year. And I've, I've kept that up. So, so knowing just a few hours, because some things I let go, a lot I, I kept going. I was actually delighted when I read in your book that tango dancing was good for you, because that's one of the things I learned. <laughs> Think of how much more interesting you are. I mean, you have so many more things that you know about now and that you can talk to people about and that people are interested in. And you've met so many more interesting people because of it. And, it, you know, it's all good, Tatiana. It's all good. And yet we, we hear so much in, in, in every day about the fact that we are just flooded with too much information and too many jobs and too many things to do. And life right. is so stressful. But most of those tasks are really mundane. They're not, they're not things that stretch you. So essentially what you're saying, if I understand correctly, is that this whole thing about it mattering to the brain is really important. So you've right. got to move out right. of your comfort zone, right? We've designed the world and we continue, there are continual pressure in the world to, to, to change our lives so that we can live it without much requirement for the use of our brain, right? I mean, we <laughs> absolutely largely what commerce is about, right? It's trying to figure out how we could just we could just be passive receivers of fast-flowing, wonderful things that just engage the hell out of us, but don't actually involve us. I mean, the average citizen of the world in the, in the modern in in your country and mine spends more than ten hours a day sitting in a chair. What the hell is that? You know how much, how much, how much effective use of your your general body are you getting from that? How much, how much, how effective are you translating information you're receiving into your actions? Which is sort of the main thing that we were designed to do. So in in all kinds of ways, it's so weird how we live our lives, and it's becoming more and more distorted. And it's limiting us neurologically more and more. They say, well, it's tremendous. So we have all this, we got the internet. Yeah. So I can look up every answer. I never have to reason to one anymore. Actually, I don't have to figure anything out. I can have someone tell me. And, uh, you know, every, every place, I even go to the park and they've paved the path. What the hell is that? You know, I mean, it's just, so we've created this sort of bizarre, and we can operate in the world like a zombie. And uh, this to me is uh, not a positive 
not a positive direction for our human, for our brains to be moving in. We need to figure out ways to re-enliven our brains and we need to re-engage in the world and we need to actually live in it. Yeah, it'd be much more fun too, I think, yeah, <laughs> for sure. sure. <laughs> so um, is neurogenesis correlated with plasticity at all? Does, you know, not, not only improving the connectivity of the brain and changing its structure, but does the process of engaging the brain in that way actually mean new brain cells or do you need new brain cells for plasticity? It's a, it's a great, uh, first of all, you don't because the primary changes that are occurring in the strengths of connections and, and, and changes that are occurring locally in, uh, in their elaboration and elaboration of the connectivity of the brain or the, or the strengths of connections in the brain. So for every connection between nerve cells in the brain, it can be very strong or very weak or it can disappear and reappear. And, 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 and uh, all of those things are changing continuously. So on a local scale, forget nerve cells, but on, on the processes of nerve cells, there are all of these changes that are continuously occurring. And they occur literally uh, quadrillions of times in your life. You know, they're just an, a, a, un, uncountable times in your life. There are these little changes occurring in the strengths of connections. Now, now underlying that, just a second, Tadia, I have to turn off my phone. <laughs> no problem. I I can't believe I didn't do that before I sat down. What a bad person. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, but, but also there, there are, and we argue about the extent to which there are new neurons uh, that are, that are I mean, scientists argue, not me. Uh, and certainly that would matter. And what we do see unequivocally is that we do see in old brains or in brains that are struggling we see specific cell populations that are very crucial that, that, are at, that are at least inactive. They're just not really in there. They're not really contributing. So, for example, there are cell populations that contribute, brain cell populations that are extremely crucially to, to the organization of synchronization of activity. And that's really important for the brain's reliable, reliable performance. And they just, they just uh, they're tremendously weakened in an old brain that's infirm. And we know that they're plastic. We know that this is plastic. So we can actually engage the brain and drive positive changes in them in which all of these cells become active again. Now we also think that we may be, might be generating, we also believe we're generating new cells of this class and that that would be valuable. But we're not completely sure about the scale in which that's occurring. And again, when across scientists that have done different experiments of this class, they argue and argue and argue about the scale of it. So we're not really certain about it. Uh, but we, don't, we know that plasticity does not require new neuron, valuable plasticity does not require new, new neuron formation. Wow, very interesting. I definitely was born in that generation of people who was brought up at school to believe that, you know, your brain formed and that was it. Nothing yeah, ever changed. Right, right. But on the other hand, everybody knows that we continually have the capacity to learn. So why this resistance um, uh, originally to the idea of plasticity? Well, people did beautiful experiments and the experiment just seemed to show this so very clearly. And the experiments were done in the, in the, in vision, in vision, and in the vision, vision we have a peculiarity, and the peculiarity is is that we need to combine information from the two eyes to record information in depth. And the only way we can, we can do that reliably is if we do that in a way that that structures that rigidly. So there's one place in the brain where the adult brain is very aplastic, doesn't change once it's created, because if it changed, it would destroy our ability to see things in depth. And that was where plasticity was primarily studied. So this is one reason. The second reason, Tatiana, was people studied very beautifully the way that the big trunk, the main trunk lines of the brain, you could say the superhighways of the brain were formed in the young brain. And what they saw was is that they could change these trunk, these the destinations of these superhighways when the brain was very young, but after a certain age, they couldn't change them anymore. So they concluded that the brain could be altered when the brain was very young, but later physically could not be altered. 
and it really re reflected the crudity of the methodologies of the time because what they didn't fully appreciate was that on a on the local scale zillions of changes were occurring they were just all occurring you know more 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 on a on a on a smaller on a tighter on a level of brain connection connections itself and that were invisible to them and then the last thing that they the last big uh, you could say i don't call it error but basis of this misconception was very compelling is that they would take a piece of brain in a dish from an animal obviously not a person and they would demonstrate that it was very plastic when they studied it in a in a very young animal and then they had a little older brain and it wasn't plastic and what they didn't realize was that in the older brain in order for the brain to change conditions have to be right the older brain grows up and controls change right and they didn't understand the controlling conditions for that change so there had a whole series of wonderful reasons to believe to adopt this religion even though you know it makes no sense i mean you know that you know that things are continuously changing in life right so so and when we initially did plasticity experiments we demonstrated that brain was changing on a large scale almost unbelievable scale you know we could look at the area of the brain that represents the hand and we could we could grow it to be a far larger far more detailed representation of, of the surface of the hand or we could shrink it to be half as large and a very degraded representation a very crude hand we could change it unbelievably dramatically and the whole machinery of the brain brain changing dramatically they thought we were making it up people couldn't believe that that actually occurred and so you know there was actually an argument about people were dumbfounded when this was discovered because they were so convinced that plasticity was limited to early childhood nothing could be further from the truth plasticity is a lifelong it's it's the brain's big trick well it's it's just essential it's, for survival it's the, basis, it's the basis of us you know yeah yeah and thank goodness it doesn't go away because we never <laughs> learn another thing <laughs> there's another thing tatiana i just like to add people think about plasticity as just being the connection the wiring of the brain it's much more than that when you grow any ability you actually grow the the the, the blood supply to that support the ability you actually strengthen the brain in in all kinds of ways that relate to its health you know it's it's sort of like exercising the body when you exercise the body you don't just strengthen the muscle just about everything that relates to your physical health you're strengthening your cardiovascular support you're strengthening your the way the hormones engage all kinds of things are positively it, 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 it improved and it's the same with your brain of course you know it is an organ like the other organs of your body and engaging it improves its general health and and people don't think about brain health you go to the doctor and the doctor says how are you tatiana and you say i i guess i'm okay you've just had your annual brain exam you know what kind of medicine is that <laughs> but there it's all about it's all about engaging your brain to keep it healthy right so essentially why does the brain age in modern society Ooh, the way that it yeah. does i mean yeah, surely on some level we are we are getting in a, a, a certain amount of of stimulus and input that's that's making even if they're small small grade yeah. plasticity changes so why does thing why does it go you know belly up well i'll just say a few things first of all there is there is senescence right i mean we don't we're, we are biological uh uh species we we can't last forever so that there is that okay so that beyond that okay we we have an early period in life in which we're continually acquiring ability you could say or substantially you know you could say we can't go through our young life and we're we're basically creating ourselves and our brain and all of all of the skills and abilities that are the basis of our of the person that we are and we uh we prepare ourselves for our life's work and we and now we're in it and we're and we gradually stabilize our life and you know roughly around our 30th birthday things start to go downhill and one of the things that happens 
in an older life is that if you just track the number of hours that are spent in behavior that you could say is performed automatically, you're, you're, you've reached a peak roughly around your 20th birthday. And now more and more of the time you spend in the day, you're, you're performing it unthinkably. You're, you're operating with skills and abilities that you acquired when you were a younger person. And that largely defines how you spend your life and day, right? I mean, it's not that you're not attending and paying attention a significant number of hours, but, and then you become more and more stereotype, stereotypic in your behavior, more and more automatized if you allow yourself to be. Don't allow yourself to be. Or to put it another way, what if you were a violinist in a symphony orchestra who stopped practicing? How long would it take for you to lose your job? Okay, and what's happening when you're not practicing? Well, you, we came up to a peak, and 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 then and then you stop practicing. You're going to slowly deteriorate because basically you're leaving unattended these skills and abilities that that kept you at the peak. So it's necessary in a sense that you keep practicing, and that's another way of saying. When you were younger, you were continually engaged with the world and you were, you were taking in its details and you were trying to figure out how to do things and manipulate things and, manip and operate within it and, uh, you know, bouncing across the field and doing all of these. And now you're not. Now you're largely a passive receiver of information. Now you're largely sitting on your keister. Now you're largely uh, uh, being moved around in a capsule. You know, now, now you're largely withdrawn. Now, when you walk down the street, you're largely within yourself, not paying attention to anything. You don't even know really what's on the next street. You're, you've withdrawn. And all of that is to your self-destruction. So one of the reasons we deteriorate, very, and this can be recorded in lots of ways. If you just look at how fast a person does elemental things, Decade by decade, they're slower and slower and slower, past about their 30th birthday. Women take a little longer than men to begin to slow down there. They might be 40. But, but, uh, but basically, in our older life, every decade, three decades go by. I go from my 30th to my 60th birthday. I've moved a long, large distance across the human population in performance, if I'm the average older person. That does not have to happen. When you're 60, you can actually be faster than almost every 20-year-old if you decided to be. And if you were faster and could record information more reliably and you had all of the insight and information that came from accumulating knowledge to your 60th birthday, that 20-year-old would have a hell of a hard time keeping up with you. Why wouldn't you want to be that 60-year-old? I do. <laughs> Why wouldn't you choose to be some 60-year-old that is always embarrassed by by uh, the 20-year-old running circles around them. So, you know, it, this, is, this is basically why, you, why I just say that deterioration on, the, on this level, you, you know, ultimately, we, we, we have to, you know, we have to, uh, we have to ultimately slow down and leave this mortal coil. But we can certainly dramatically change the progressions that apply to a normal life. And that's and, and, and we're just foolish not to take charge of your brain. You know, you're the commander of the ship. In a sense that you've been given this great gift and, and and it's really under your control. And just take charge. Right. One of the things I found absolutely fascinating about um, your work is, is this idea that as you get older, one of the problems um, that you experience and, and the sort of uh, the example of the aging brain is this signal to noise ratio idea. Right. I'm always right. joking with my daughter that, you know, the difference between me and her is that my disc needs defragmenting and hers doesn't. <laughs> Yeah, right. um, uh, which made me laugh because essentially that was that was the same idea. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I find that really interesting. Well, one of the things that we did and we've done in uh, in animal experiments, and, and it was to and this was done in rodents. Uh, so we can take a rat near the end of life, and we can look at the brain, and it's very noisy. And we can we can we can we can look at the physical and functional brain of the rat, and everything that we look at is is degraded. 
So when we compare that old brain to the brain of an animal in the prime of life, it just really, everything we, you know, we looked at about 30 things now. And every one of those 30 things is degraded. It's, it's slower, it's less reliable, it's physically, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, losing the insulation on its brain wiring. There are cell populations that are crucial to brain operations that are weakening. It, the strengths of connections in the brain are weakening. All kinds of things are, are weakening and degraded. And, and the changes are substantial. Of course, the animal's about to die, not too far in its future. It's, it's approaching the end of its life. So then we engage the animal by training it. Everything is rejuvenated. Everything. And in fact, in most characteristics in a rat, you can drive it operationally and physically to look like the brain of an animal in the prime of life. So why did it change? So we thought, so we said, well, let's see if we can make a brain noisier faster. And uh, so what we did is we, we basically brought a rat into an environment in which it was, it was continuously, that was continuously noisy. And, Are you and talking about uh, auditory noise or? Well, we did, we did this with auditory noise because it was a way to make brain noise. But really what matters is brain noise, right? And what is brain noise? Brain noise is just meaningless chatter, you could say, on the in the machinery of the brain. It's an electrical machine. It's just continuously, rather than having highly resolved representation of information, it's got all of this background, you know, chatter, 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 right? So it's always struggling to resolve what's happening in, in, in this background of chatter. And when you do that for, for three or four or five weeks in a, in a rat in the prime of life, the brain looks like it's about to die. So basically you can accelerate aging so that all of these characteristics are shot again. And all of them look like the brain is very degraded. Well, they are, it is very degraded. And all of the same physical and functional things, all of these things change together negatively. So you could say that noise or the reduction of noise, where, where, where you could argue about whether it's actually the actual cause of the degradation. So actually here's what the brain is doing. You could say, well, why would the brain have this bi-directional plasticity. I can, I can make everything lots worse. I can make everything lots better. Why would it have that uh, characteristic? Well, what it's designed to do, I'm, I, we hypothesize, is, you know, noisiness rises in older brains, but the brain still has to get the answer right. So in order to get the answer right, what it does is it, it adjusts its characteristics. It changes itself physically and functionally so that get the answer right. The way to think about it is, is that if I have to figure out what I'm seeing and the conditions are poor, let's say it's towards the evening and, uh, you know, the, it's, uh, you know, I'm in the gloaming and I can't, I say, what is that I see by the wood? Is that, it's a deer, you know, it'll look long enough. I can resolve it, right? You have to increase the time in which you examine. <laughs> in other words, you have to change your characteristics to get the answer right. If we don't get the answer right, we don't survive. We have to, we have to basically, and the brain basically is controlling its, its changes and its health on the basis of getting the right answer. And uh, it's continually evaluating whether something was right or correct or whether it got a good one, whether this is a good one or that's a bad one, right? It's continually doing that. So basically it's making these adjustments, you could say, to get the most out of its performance from the point of view of it's, it's it protecting itself. And that's what it's doing. Well, you can get the answer right at a lot, <laughs> at a lot higher speed. And that's what you got to be doing. With a hot, lot higher fidelity, you have to get back to, uh, you could say, turning up the uh, bright performance characteristics of the brain again by by driving it. And that's really what we're trying to do when we engage brains on computers in a program like Brain HQ. That's really what we're trying to do. We're trying to help people recover those abilities, just like we know we can recover them in a rat. When you drive a change in something as elemental, Tatiana, as speed, say, how fast can things go by and I can understand every little piece of them? When I look at something, how fast can it, can it be? How fast can I be in identifying what I just saw or just heard? 
that speed is reflecting many fundamental aspects of the physical brain, of the chemical brain. When I'm fast, I know that the physical structure of the brain and its chemical structure has to be healthy. When it's slow, I know that things that the health of the organ is really in question. So, wow, why wouldn't you want to have a faster brain? <laughs> right? I mean, it was just, just, just obvious. You want to have a faster one. Well, well, think about things you could do in your everyday life that could make it faster. You know, pay attention to, to improving how fast you're at, are at making, re resolving what you see or hear or feel. And if you need to go to a computer and help, help yourself that way too. Right. These days, a lot of um, people talk about mindfulness. And I mean, one of right. the, the things of mindfulness is actually being aware of exactly what you're doing. And I mean, essentially, that's exactly right. what you're saying, isn't it? Is right. that if you, if you right. engage, that, that you right. can keep that going for indefinitely. There are two aspects of it, I think, that are wonderful. One is, one is, is that you're uh, in, in practicing and controlling your attention, you're also practicing and controlling your uh, the operations of your brain that are controlling your the levels in which your or your responses to distracting things in your brain or in in the world. And really, what you want to be in the world to be effective is you want to be in a world in which you see things in a clear way and that's not contaminated and distracted by all of this noisy, meaningless stuff. Right? Again, that relates to signal to noise conditions in brains. And 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 also. In, if you're mindful, and that means to say you're smelling the roses and you're really appreciating it and you're really looking for the surprises in life and you're really moving across the landscape as if, uh, as if the details of it matter to you and you're really looking at that person that passes on the street and maybe actually smiling to them. <laughs> if you really are mindful, that's a very healthy thing to be. You know, it, it, the notion that, you know, in sometimes said in these practices, live life like a, like, like a kid again. Do it, you know, as I say, do it. That's a really good way to be. Be open. Well, not maybe so quite so irresponsible as I was when I was a child. But, but I mean being open to what you see and hear and look for the surprise. And, and, and when you see something interesting, Examine it and try to understand it. And one of the things that I see that just, you know, so many people walk through the world and the most amazing thing can be happening right in front of them and they don't see it. And you say, well, gosh, how many things has this person been missing out on life? It's a little bit like li li living life with a two by two inch square television set. Why would you live life like that? <laughs> be open absolutely yeah so the other thing i wanted to take on a bit further from that is um like in the personal development world which is a blockbuster industry worldwide at the moment um they base everything on neuroplasticity brain plasticity right so what about the simple fact of, well, it's not simple, of, of we've been talking a lot about physical actions, about um, learning skills and so on. But what about thoughts, thoughts and beliefs? Are they possible to change through plasticity or is that I didn't, some... I didn't, I didn't hear the word that you, that you used. How about... Thought, thoughts and beliefs. So are they, can you just change the way you think about something using plasticity or is that just a, a kind of a, a, a romantic extrapolation of the science? Well, that's, that's a wonderful question. And uh, the machinery that controls your operations and thought is the same machinery. It's not, not different, right? And you could say, so one of the, there's a wonderful class of experiment where people, uh, well, one of my favorite experiments in, 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 in all of, uh, of uh, psychology that relates to this are people that would, uh, well, I get a variety of, you can have people that simply examine, you know, one of these complex Buddhist pictures of Buddha with all of these details, right? So they, they master it. They, and then, then you can show that their visual perception is, is, is improved. You can give them an objective test of visual perception. I can spend all this time doing this sort of semi-religious, almost, you know, in some way silly thing, but still they're controlling their attention, making all the, 
then you actually give them another test of their visual perception, but and they're improved. You can you can you can practice juggling in your mind, and it turns out it's more valuable than actually practicing juggling with your hands. If I see a juggler and I watch him, it's more valuable for me to watch them twice as much as actually juggling. And in a sense, I'm, I'm imprinting in, their, in my mind what I need to do, right? So, of course, that's changing your brain. People have, people have said, practice this mental, this, uh, this musical melody. Don't move your fingers. Practice this musical melody in your brain, okay? Now play it. Well, you can actually show that when they do that, they change, their brain changes in all of the ways as if they were actually practicing by playing, right? But it's all mental. So, of course, it's the same machinery that, that's involved. And, and, and uh, it's, a, it's a little bit more complicated than that because, because in thought, you, there, there, there is the second thing that you're, there is an agent in play. The agent is you. You're, there's, a, there's a commander in there. The action is, can be controlled from the top, right? And this is something that you can strengthen and grow that you in there, that self-reference entity that is the agent, can be grown, made stronger. By the way, that's something you really want to be doing. Or I, you can weaken it. It's weakened fatally in conditions like schizophrenia, whether you can just essentially almost evaporate. And you never know, did I do that or did, did she do that or did Jesus do that? So I, I, it's a little bit complicated, but, but basically it is the same processes. Mental practice, mental rehearsal is very valuable for a brain. You want, and, and it is, again, it's a skill that should be a continuously practiced skill. It's one of the reasons why, uh, Tatiana, continually acquiring new skills or abilities where you have to bring, use your brain for continuous problem solving is a very, very good form of exercise. Try these different, I want to, I want to build this, I don't know, birdhouse. Well, I could do it this way or that way or this way or that way. I could do it this way, that way, this way, that way. That's a very good sort of exercise. As long as you don't just limit yourself to building birdhouses. <laughs> so, of course, we, we've talked a little bit about dementia and um, you just mentioned schizophrenia. But what, what, in your opinion, what kind of range of, of problems are really uh, directly related to, to a, a dysfunction in plasticity or, or that we haven't engaged our brains enough? Well, there, 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 first of all, there are a million things that happen to you. Uh, and uh, and uh, that can compromise the brain. You could say increase the noisiness of the brain. Right. And and there's there's in in the literature there's about a hundred things. Well, I'm speaking very loosely, but I know of about a hundred things, more than a hundred things that have been identified as increasing the risk of the earlier onset of dementia, Alzheimer's disease, or other forms of dementia. And uh, so that's a lot of things, and that's a that's a very incomplete list. And and you can go down this list, and I can see how uh, virtually all of these things, or almost all of them, would increase the noisiness of the process of the brain, the chatter in the brain. And uh, one of the things that occurs in brains that increases its chatter is that the brain has a very protected relationship by which it separates the blood the tissues of the brain, and it does this in part because the brain is electrical, and and if the fluids from the blood got into the uh, into the tissues of the brain, they would sort of short circuit it. You know, you want to keep, the two compartments are kept separate, so the so the in the brain you only allow nutrients to go across into the brain. You don't allow other agents to go go across because they would affect the operations of the brain, and one of the things that commonly happens in brains that are struggling for any one of a variety of reasons is, is that this barrier becomes leaky. And when it becomes leaky, one of the things that happens is, is that now agents from blood go into the brain and they, and they increase the noisiness in the brain. 
Okay, so we've heard a lot about leaky gut, and so this is leaky brain, right? Exactly. <laughs> okay. Exactly. And the other thing that they do is is they uh, is now if the leak is bad enough, things like viruses can move into the brain, and what happens in the brain is the brain coats the viruses with a with a, a small protein called amyloid that creates what's called an amyloid body. And it's actually doing that to protect itself. An amyloid body is a signature marker for Alzheimer's disease. You, what amyloid bodies have the unfortunate condition that not only they wall off the virus, so the virus can't duplicate, that's a good thing. But the bad thing is, is that they disable neuro, neuron activity right around them. So it's like throwing a little grenade in the brain. You throw enough of those grenades in the brain and you have a problem. Right. So all of these things, I, I'm, I'm talking in sort of confused way, but fortunately, all of these things are subject to positive plastic change. So I said before that when you, when you engage the brain, the brain gets stronger and things like its vascularization gets stronger. Well, one of the things that, that gets stronger is this barrier between the blood compartment and the brain compartment. Right. And uh, so... One of the things that people do not fully appreciate, even many, many people in neurology and neurological medicines, uh, yeah, is that this science has, is demonstrating that brain health, that the, that the values of exercise of your brain by how you live your life, by your lifestyle, and if necessary, by using things like these brain training tools in the right form, are, are, relate to the general health of the organ of the brain. There is a, ba they do provide a basis for true brain medicine. You could go to the doctor and the doctor can actually make simple little measures and say, hey, your brain is organically not healthy. You know, that would be a revolution. And hey, do things in your lifestyle. It's like you do in your physical body. Let's say with your heart or your, or your cardiovascular system or your pulmonary system, the, the doctor says, do these things. And, uh, and when you come back, uh, We'll check and see if you're better. And then if you're not better, then the next thing is done. There can be a medicine of the brain. There will be a medicine of the brain coming from this science in the immediate future. And it will be, uh, it will, what, what it will lead to, Tatiana, is better and better strategies for increasing our health, for improving our resilience against all of these bad outcomes. Yeah, I mean, I can just imagine if everyone sort of like um, <clears throat> did all of the brain exercises and at the same time did a lot of, you know, constructive physical exercises and ate well and, and did all of the things that you're supposed to. I mean, you can really age healthily and age well. It, it's, it's that dystopian future that we're all <laughs> that we're all subjected to is not yeah. necessarily the way it has to be. Right. I think, I think that's right. And I, and I, and I dream that we will all wake up to this fact and we'll all, and that in general, people will appreciate this gift in a sense, like, and, and what they need to do to sustain it in a sense, like they have woken up to a large extent to understand what they need to be doing to sustain their physical health. Right. You know, they'll wake up to what they need to keep that most important of organs healthy. Right. And just do a better job of it. Great. I see our time is, is slipping away. I feel like we've only just started talking, but it's, it's going, so I better, better get on. Um, one question I did have was, was going back to this point where you say that the brain starts to become plastic when it matters. Now, when I hear that, immediately I think of emotion. Is that the trigger? Is that the driving force that, that actually makes, makes the brain go, save this, throw this away? Um, because, you know, we, again, sort of positive psychology these days is very focused on, on thinking positively and, and trying to actually engage an emotional feeling when you, when you intend something or when you, you attempt something. Does that make sense to you? Is, is, what role does emotion play in our plasticity? Well, the modulators are associated inextricably they are they are also the modulators of alertness you could say of attention mm -hmm. focused attention and of and of uh, pleasure reward uh also also you know punishment is also a modulator but, but let's say on the positive side so you know when you when you evaluate 
whether you've gotten the answer right, you know, it's it, you have that little pulse of, hey, I got the answer right. That is not no accident. That's reflecting the fact that the brain basically is is signal is in that moment is saying save those things that just happened, strengthen those connections that just happened that contributed to getting that answer right right and it, it's this associated emotional response to it so so absolutely it is associated with the same machinery so another way to put it is is that if i have a brain that's really very active learner and it's really very actively uh, engaged in uh, new learning all my life then i'm going to be more alert i'm going to be more on the ball i'm going to be more attentive I'm going to be able to focus my attention more reliably, and I'm going to be happier. What a thought. <laughs> Happiness is related to the, the sort of richness in my life. It relates to the things that I'm doing in my life that I enjoy, that I'm rewarded by. What a surprise, right? So, <laughs> you know, I mean... Uh, it's there are also ways, of course, that you can you can uh, trump this. You know, you can take drugs or uh, or another or uh, or uh, engage in other uh, activities. You could say that reward your you richly, and uh, uh, you can make lots of money, and you can there. There's lots of synthetic ways to engage this machinery, but the healthiest way to engage it is the natural way. Right. And 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 uh, I strongly encourage people to engage it the natural way. And also, of course, in you know, you want to be a lively human individual. You know, in the presence of other human individuals, what do you want to have working more effectively than all of these things that contribute to your soulfulness? To your to 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 your emotional responses and understanding, and uh, everything you can do that can contribute to sustaining that as an as an enriched asset. <laughs> Another thing I, I tell people a lot, Tatiana, is, is that you can't always control how happy other people make you feel. So you can't you cannot. You cannot sit there waiting for other people to deliver rewards to you, but you can deliver rewards to them. You can be a source of happiness. And it turns out that when you do that, your brain machinery is exercised just as if you got the reward. So it's very good for you to be an open and generous person. Why wouldn't you do that? It seems like so many people haven't quite got that message. <laughs> oh, yeah. there's, there's still a shortage, isn't there? <laughs> Absolutely. So if there was one thing that you could tell people who are listening to this to change tomorrow, to make their, their brain health and their lives much, much better, what would it be other than going to I, Brain I, HQ? <laughs> well, I'd like to slap them aside the head if they need it. And I'd say, hey, look, you're in charge. You know, you're, 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 you want to you want to moan about your fate and say, oh, I'm getting old, and you know, I, I, you know, I had all of these things I can't do. You're in charge of, you could say, self. You have a capacity to continue to grow. In fact, potentially to recover a lot of lost ground and then continue to grow. Why wouldn't you choose to do that? You know, why would you opt? For, uh, for progressive misery. Why would you do that? So part of it is, and part of, part of this, people just get kind of tired and they, they become sort of uh, exhausted with the struggles and they say, oh, you know, this is my fate. It's only your fate if you allow it to be. It is your fate, absolutely, if you do nothing. So do something. You know, I, I wish... I wish that uh, everyone understood, and I think people will, people will gradually understand uh, what a wonderful thing this is, that, that, that an asset that we have. We humans have this amazing asset. And, and what a wonderful thing it is, is that we can continue, in a sense, to recreate or, or to, to regenerate ourselves in a better form. 
Right. So if you think you need a better form, get busy regenerating. <laughs> so my last three little very quick questions, I ask all of my guests when they come on. And um, the first one of those is, is the word health. How do you personally define health? What does that word mean for you? Well, to me, uh, it, it's a complicated thing, but because it, it's, 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 uh, it, 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 it ties with uh, my physical well-being and spirits. I don't think you can separate the physical well-being from the spirit. In a, in a way, I, what I, another thing I want, I'd like want to say to people is, is that a lot of people think that health is all in the body. It is not all in the body. It's in the body and the brain. Healthy brains contribute to healthy bodies. Healthy bodies contribute to healthy brains. Nobody told the brain or the body that they weren't all part of the same organ. Organism. Right. So that's one thing. But I think that if you're if you're not healthy in spirit, you're not healthy. And if you're and, and if and, it, and it's a tremendous limitation if you can't move in the world and operate in the world with some level of movement, uh, control of your actions, of course. Everyone can't do that. But, uh, but uh, that's certainly something to try to keep in the best stead possible. Right. And what about happiness? What does Mike Mezzanine do to be happy, to make himself happy? Well, uh, I, I think it's, I think, first of all, you have to be, uh, there has to be a level of satisfaction with how you view yourself and how you see yourself and how you see yourself as a person. And uh, you have to reflect upon that. You have to say, am I the person I want to be? And if you're not, you should do something about it, of course. But, but I, trans I think that we are by our nature social animals. We're made to be that way. We don't, we, we, we incorporate other people into the person that we are. We construct it, it's part of our neurology. First I create myself, and then I attach anybody really important to me into that self. They're actually part of me. My wife, my dear wife, my dog, my grandchildren and children, my friends are part of me. And happiness is to be, you know, I think not just about me, but in a sense, I think about those extended parts of me. And I think about their, I think we're, that we're happiest when we're all happy together. Agreed. And when we take care of one another together. Agreed. And I think that it's, it's sort of crazy not to extend this into the wider world. And think about it being an agent of, of kindness and connection in the world. And uh, I think if we could just understand that that's what we're designed to do, it would be a better world. Right. And my very last question, question which segues nicely into that is serenity i always say that serenity is a word that's that's much underused um what do you do to find serenity to get turn that noise down and find that quiet place inside uh when i'm in in uh, certain environments so i might be i might be uh trying doing my feeble best to uh create a, a watercolor that i would be happy with or you could say proud of and maybe I'm not that but anyway I'm there I'm lost in it in the in the center or I'm at the I'm at the ballet I love the ballet I love music combined with movement it's one of my favorite things mine too I, or, or, or 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 in many other conditions like this I I find that my mind is the most vibrant and the most peaceful and I actually find that it's, it's one of the places where I some of my greatest insights have come as a scientist <laughs> or as a person because I'm there and suddenly in my brain, the combination of things makes a connection and out springs some amazing new thing. And I think that, uh, you know, but also I, I, I have a, I have a garden and in my garden I grow, uh, I have a little orchard and I grow vegetables and I have, I have, I have the rule that for every vegetable, for every practical plant, you should have a flower. <laughs> so I just like to be out there in the flowers with the bugs and the bees and, <laughs> and the, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and out there in the, uh, 
I just like to be out in the world. Uh, you could say thinking about things. So I think I think having peaceful time in which uh, times for reflection and uh, and 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 commonly I'm thinking about it in a kind of theme because it relates to what I'm reading or what I'm doing, you know. I'm, but uh, I think it's really a critical aspect of a of a healthy life. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I really acknowledge you for your amazing work. Um, I, I say to everybody I know that there are two things that are going to change the face of medicine. One of them is neuroplasticity and the other one is the microbiome. <laughs> and I can't believe that one of the, the founding fathers of one of those two things is sitting right in front of me. I am so grateful for the time and I'm so grateful for your work. And I luckily know that you're going to be doing it for a long, long time. <laughs> a wonderful so. conversation, and I and I, I really enjoyed meeting you in 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 this way. And and I hope it's the first of many meetings. And uh, and oh, I would be nice to have anytime. a second conversation or two or three. Right? It would be my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. That's my great pleasure. So, dear listeners, I hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. What a marvelous, marvelous man and what a marvelous, marvelous body of work that is really going to revolutionize our lives. And for many of us has already started to do that. So please take his words really to heart because I honestly think that keeping your brain plastic, healthy, moving and agile is really the key to living healthy for longer. And after all, that's what our message is all about. So until the next time, please keep listening, rate, review us on iTunes, go visit our Facebook page and like that too, please. And check, um, we always put out interesting articles, interesting science that comes out during the week. Um, we've got a whole load of really great guests lined up for you. Um, although I must admit, Mike's going to be one that's going to be hard to top. Um, in addition to that, we're going to be launching a, a Facebook group soon so that we can actually really become a community and start talking to each other. And to help facilitate that, of course, we encourage you um, to get on board, become a London Heal Insider by going over to londonheal.com, getting on the mailing list. You'll get weekly newsletters with a bit more information than we just put out with the podcast. And so until next time, wishing you all health, happiness, and serenity. <laughs>